listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie. My co-host Amy is energetic and enjoys my sense of humor. I still don't understand that. She amuses me with her lack of moderation and extreme technological savvy. <laughs> I'm Amy. My co-host Carrie dazzles me with her people skills and ever sunny disposition. And sometimes I even drag her out of her house. Basically, we're opposites, but we find common ground on our shared love of books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading with each other and sometimes a special guest. We also dabble in other topics like books in the news, recent book-inspired films, our TBR accounts, and general things that tease our brains. We're so glad you're listening. This week, we talked to Huda Fami, a graphic novelist whose fourth book, Huda F. Cares, was a finalist for the 2023 National Book Award in Young People's Literature. Her book focuses on a teenage Muslim girl named Huda who takes a road trip in the family station wagon from Michigan to Florida to visit Disney World with her parents and many sisters. There, she grapples with wanting to fit in with her peers, but also wanting to stay true to her family and her Muslim religion with issues like wearing her hijab and praying in public. The character Huda in her book is based on the author's experience growing up in an Egyptian family that immigrated to the U.S. Huda talks about her love of comics and how she picked up English in part by reading Garfield comic books. Huda began writing graphic novels at the age of 30 when two of her sisters encouraged her to turn her essays of Muslim American life into illustrated stories. But first, Carrie, I want to reassure our listeners, because I had many of you contact me worried about the ghost that I may have. (laughs) The psycho. (laughs) That I may have. And I just want to say, everybody says, keep me posted. Nothing has happened since. So I will let you know if something else happens. But as of right now, everything is nice and quiet and as it should be. So there. It was a psycho passing through, maybe. One of our listeners wrote to me to say that that raccoons can unzip things, which I actually did know that. I did know that bears and raccoons can unzip. You know, they're they're quite wily, right? I do not think that they would be such a good house guest as to zip it back. I think that that... (laughs) I think that they probably don't care about zipping it back. Right. Once they get whatever's in there, in their mouths, they're like, screw this. I don't care what kind of mess I leave. (laughs) So, Carrie, I was very shocked and pleased that you contacted me on Friday. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Before you start this, I have to say, I learned a very important lesson. Oh, no. I I was afraid I've ruined it. Go ahead, start the story, and I'll add in the Carrie perspective. Well, Carrie contacted me and another mutual friend and said, hey, would anybody like to go try out Mochi Dog tomorrow? Now, Mochi Dog is this fairly new little restaurant that's inside a food hall in Louisville, and they specialize in Korean donuts and Korean corn dogs. And... I'm like, yes, that sounds awesome. And then you hedged your bets a little bit. Then you okay. hedged it. Because okay. I guess I was too excited. I don't know. Okay, here's the thing. Let me let me qualify this story a little bit. So Friday night, I was fixing dinner. I was fixing pasta for dinner. And so as we do in our house when I fix pasta, my husband opened a bottle of wine. So I had not eaten yet. I was cooking dinner, but I had already started drinking some wine. So I was hungry and I was drinking on an empty stomach. I was also working on an article and discovered this mochi dog. And I was looking them up on Instagram and getting really hungry. I was also drinking wine. So my normal sensibilities and personality was, I guess, on hold a bit. And so I floated this idea, hey, would either of you, would y'all want to go to this place? But I did say, you know, I am a little buzzed and hungry and I'm writing this article and it's going to be cold tomorrow. So 
if I can get myself out of my pajamas. I mean, it was a very like, maybe in some realm, in some universe, we could do this tomorrow. (laughs) So the next day, I get a text from Amy. And it doesn't say, how are you feeling about going out today? Or you think you're going to get dressed today? Or anything that it was, when are we meeting? When are we going to meet? Of course. And I'm like, daggone it. (laughs) I just floated an idea and now I am locked in to an event. Yes, you are. I wasn't going to let this moment pass. Very rarely do you ask me to do something. I often drag you out of your house when I ask you to do things and you warily agree to do it. And almost always do you enjoy it, unless you're just not telling me when you really hate something. But I'm pretty sure that you would actually savor telling me that you yeah, I would. Hated, you I would. would. I'd be like, it. that sucks. I hate that. I'm never going out again. Yes, I would. I'd <laughs> so let the you fact know. that you suggested that we meet at this place and it involved food sounded awesome and I wasn't going to let that moment pass. So, yes, I was going to keep you to it. You could have said, <laughs> I, I mean, did I really keep you to it? All I said is, what time are we meeting? You could have easily said, never. You could have well, said. Well, I could have. I could have. And now I have learned my lesson. And I will be more judicious about floating ideas. Let me just say, <laughs> I'm already pretty judicious about it anyway. But it, we, we did have a good time. I, I got my uh, donuts and uh, it, was, it was good. It wasn't terrible. I had a good time. There you go. Got you out of your house. Got you out of your pajamas. You did. Uh, there's you did. nothing wrong with that. So uh, some of our special guests from last season have been nominated for some major awards. Did, were you aware of this? Uh, well, when you texted me the information, I was. We had two of our uh, guests from last year nominated for an Edgar Award, which is awarded to... Oh, Irish. wait. I don't think I knew both. I knew one, but I don't think I knew yeah, the other. There okay, were two. well, go ahead. Mystery Writers of America Association gives yearly awards and Ritu Mukherjee, who was on our show in November uh, for her book, Murder by Degrees, a historical mystery, has been nominated for Best First Novel by an American Author. And then Tracy Clark, who we interviewed back in January a year ago, she has been nominated for Best Paperback Original for her book, Hyde. Wow. And she has a new one out that came out right before Christmas. That's in that same series. I love that series. So yeah, that was very exciting. And then yesterday I saw that another guest, Katrina Monroe. So we talked to her in October, I believe, Mm -hmm. about her book, Graveyard of Lost Children. She is a horror thriller writer. She is on the long list for the Bram Stoker Award. Wow. Yeah. That's so pretty cool. We pick them good, Carrie. We do. We pick them good. There you go. So, you know, when you asked me last week if I had any goals for the new year, and I'm like, yeah, not really. And then later mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I do have some goals. I just haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Are they goals or are they habits? I'm going to give you the third degree on yours <laughs> since you gave me the third degree on uh, mine. Well, I feel like goals can turn into habits, right? They say you have to do something for so many weeks before it becomes ingrained in your everyday schedule and it becomes a habit. So that's what I'm going to say about this. Actually, I think I did mention this on the podcast like before the end of the year. But one of my goals for the new year is that I want to see a movie in the movie theater mm-hmm. once a month. Because I missed going to movies. And so already I have seen two movies in January. I saw Poor Things with You earlier this month. And then this past weekend, I went to see American Fiction. I loved it. It's based on a book by Percival Everett, the 2001 novel titled Erasure. So, and I'm kind of interested in reading the book now. This movie has Jeffrey Wright, Sterling K. Brown, Diana Ross's daughter is in it, Tracy Ellis Ross. It was fantastic. And I think that if you were in the book world, like we are, Carrie, everyone (laughs) in the book world should go see it because it asks a lot of interesting questions. It's basically about a black writer played by Jeffrey Wright, who writes literary fiction novels. Now, from the previews, I get the sense that he's not, I mean, okay, now 
I'm not saying this as me. I'm saying this, the premise of the movie is that he doesn't write things that are in quotes, black enough for publishers. Right. So he's a black man writing, but what he writes about isn't necessarily black enough, I guess, for the publishers. And so he gets kind of frustrated because his books are not selling. So he writes something in the style of some of these, what he considers pandering, like urban fiction. And it sells and... White people love it, I'm sure. White people love it. He uses a pseudonym because he doesn't want it under his own name. He has to pretend to be sort of gangsta, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, And anyway, it is just so good, but it raised so many interesting questions, I thought, as a as a white person reading black literature. What is it that I take from it? Are there certain things that I am looking for when I read it? It also brought up issues like should books written by black people just be about the the devastating black experience or should it also feature black joy that they're not just one thing they're not all about the tragedy right like there's multiple aspects to their lives and at one point you know Jeffrey Wright's character says you know that it it like flattens their experience to only show that one side so anyway i thought it was a fascinating movie it's funny and I loved it. So I know it's not in a lot of theaters. I, like, I don't think it's everywhere. But if you have a, a chance to see it, you should go see it. And Very good. Carrie, actually- shame on you that you did not go with me. I know you had a busy day. But I'm... <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sure you know how how well that's going to work with me, right? I know. Like, that I'd be like, uh, screw you. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, let me say, I did watch something this weekend. Wasn't a movie, but we have talked about this comedian in the past. I've read one of his books. Mike Berbiglia has a show oh. on Netflix called The Old Man and the Pool. And it's from 2023, but it's really good. We we watched that this weekend and, and I like his stuff. Like he has this unique way. He's not your typical comedian. He doesn't get up and just tell straight jokes. He tells these stories and they, they all, I mean, it is funny, you know, but it's also very, uh, very poignant. poignant. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's really good at blending like the very serious with the very funny. So you like, you know, something that's about an hour long I and mean, you have Netflix. I recommend the old man in the pool. Oh, I want to see that. I didn't yeah. know it was out yet. I knew he was working on one. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? Oh, I know. So we're experimenting a little bit this season where we're going to have some different segments going on in the last part of our show. We talked to a reader who's really into a specific genre, probably a genre that Carrie and I don't read a lot and maybe we don't give a lot of you know book recommendations for. So we're trying to supplement a little bit and get some readers who know these genres well and can talk about you know some books in that genre that they have been reading and really like. We've got a a new segment this week. My daughter is recorded with me a little bit. Uh, We want to throw something exciting in the mix uh, and and hear different voices. So she is a big fan of fantasy. So she is going to start periodically chatting with us about fantasy books or romanticy books that she's reading. So uh, she's enjoying this so far because we have been (laughs) sending her arcs and she's very excited uh, to have new fantasy books to read. So this week I chat with her about a book that that she read and enjoyed. So what I love about this is that we're going to be talking to some readers who read genres that aren't necessarily in our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hopefully broadening our our book suggestions uh, to some areas that we don't go as often. So I'm excited to hear from Nora. And, you know, speaking of genres, you know, you weren't a a big fan. You didn't know much about graphic novels until a couple years ago, but you have embraced them now. You are definitely into graphic novels and were instrumental in getting our guest on the show, which this week is Huda Fami. Let's talk to Huda. We 
are in season 10 and we are so excited to have Huda Fami here with us. She is an author illustrator. She has several books. The most recent is Huda F. Cares. I love the title. It was published in October of 2023. And this is your fourth book. Is that right? And your sister encouraged you to turn stories about your life experiences into comics. So tell us the beginning of that and and why you decided to make your life experiences into pictorial stories. Yeah, it, it honestly feels like a 180 life moment because when I was five years old and my parents asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what I said was, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. And they were like, that's not how you say doctor. That's nice. That's a hobby. And they're like, plus you have to be really good to be a writer. So I was like, wow, thanks mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and it put this writer's block on me for years. It made me feel like I couldn't ever do anything because I was never going to be good enough. It like extended past even writing. It just made me feel like I was just never, it, it would suck. You never know what little thing you might say to a kid mm. is something that's going to stick with them. And so I ended up teaching English because I felt like like the closest that I would get to writing was if I taught other kids to write. But I, I loved telling stories. And then I, I also loved comics, like Sunday comics, uh, Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side. And, and for, I'm first generation. My parents moved here from overseas and I didn't speak any English for the first few years. And then my parents just kind of like threw us into public school and they're like, well, you've got to speak English now. And the way I learned English was from reading comics. And I developed a lot of my sense of humor from comics as well. And it was just so easy to like put words to emotions and also understanding sarcasm and idioms and, and, you know, phrases that aren't easily translated when you're trying to learn English. And I, it became an obsession almost like all my books were comic books and um, most of them. And so it, it went on, like as I majored in English throughout university, I would try to write any chance I got where it was like a free writing assignment. I tried to write about comics and I would analyze comics the way people analyze classic literature. Hmm. And so it was this love that I'd had my whole life, but never felt like I was good enough to ever try myself until my older sister, back to a question, until my older sister had encouraged me to turn this essay. I had this collection of essays that I wanted to get published as a memoir because I wanted to see more Muslim voices represented. And I thought I had great stories as a Muslim that weren't normally told. So she was like, um, can you turn one of your essays into a comic for me? Because my whole family knows I love comics. I was like, I don't know how to draw. And she was like, um, stick figures are fine. Have you seen some of the art out there? <laughs> like, you're going to be fine. And it started that way. It just started with stick figures, really simple art. And it just kind of blossomed from there. And it became something that I only dreamed. Didn't even let myself dream to achieve this. And now I am uh, a writer. So little five-year-old Koda is so happy. <laughs> That's so fantastic. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you say you thought, well, I can just start out with stick figures, but obviously what you have now in your books are not stick figures. So was art something that you also liked as a kid or is it something that you just practiced and worked on when you were making your comics? I always wished that I could draw, but it was definitely something I had to practice and there's a different sister, but she was like, if you want to do something new, you have to learn something new. And it sounds so, so simple, but she was absolutely right. Like I wanted to do this thing of drawing and I had to actually learn the skill. It wasn't something that came to me naturally. It wasn't a talent that I had. I really, really work at it. And I, even to this day, I will take, you know, YouTube videos or classes online that, you know, are, are some are free and some are, you know, you know, you pay for them. But yeah, it's definitely a skill that I'm trying to develop. The, the more I draw, the, I feel like the better I get. We just interviewed not too long ago, it was in last season, an author illustrator, her name's Kelsey Irvick, and very similar to you in that I want to say like 2018, maybe, but she started a daily art practice and similar, you know, she had never done it. And it was through this practice that she did as an adult. Mm -hmm. And so now her memoir is about Title IX and and girls in sports. And so I just think it is so cool to see people who are adults who are like, you know, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to learn. And because when I was in school, you know, I was like, oh, well, you have to be good at art to do art. Yeah. But why would they have a class? If you know how to do art, you don't need a class. I mean, it totally defies reason, but that was my reasoning when I was 14. 
it was like for people who already knew how to draw to just master their right. naturally God-given talent. Like, right. yeah, everyone I knew who was already in art class was already really good at art. And I was like, yeah, I used to draw like anime eyes, just mm-hmm. the eye. In the corner of my my notebooks, it was just covered in these like single anime eyes. And that was like, I always wanted to draw, but it was it just felt like unattainable or unattainable, you know, until, until yeah, I, I was 30 years old when I started. And yeah, I, I enjoy it. You're an anime eye specialist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so you mentioned that, that you would read comics. And I love that because I, I work with a, a lot of ELL students, English yeah. language learners. And mm-hmm. that's such a brilliant way because th- they're learning on two levels. Like you're learning the words, but you're yep. I, but you're also getting a lot of information from yep. the images, which I, I like I never put that together, but that is so brilliant. Oh, did you have favorite comics that you always were like, I got to read these first. And also I want to ask an additional question on top of that. You know, you mentioned your parents saying writer is not, that's not doctor. Were they wanting you to read bigger, maybe not so graphic things and wanting you to read like, read this Dostoevsky or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they. Uh, so I I started with Garfield. That was I remember very distinctly. Garfield was my first, and at, if at school library had a Garfield, I would pick it up. I would just devour it, and I would I would check it out again. And and I think my parents did get concerned. They're like, you need to read more after books, which you know is an unfortunate taboo. I think is not you know this idea of, of that reading comics isn't actually reading. I did air quotes, and I realized I wasn't on camera, but. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that, that comics don't count as reading, which I, of course, completely disagree with. And so uh, they were but th- at the time, you know, they were like, you know, you should read chapter books, books without pictures. And so that's when I started. I went into like Goosebumps and Fear Street and then much too young started Stephen King, which I think is a <laughs> for a lot of people, a lot of kids who started reading Stephen King at 12 years old. You're not the first writer who said that to us. <laughs> but anyway, they wanted me to read that and then I was I very much just did love reading and it does it did go into I did end up reading a lot more but then I found Calvin and Hobbes at 10 mm. and that was my personality I didn't care my 10th birthday I want homicidal psycho jungle cat please <laughs> the title alone was like I need this please and so that began the first of many like I just collected any Calvin and Hobbes comics that I had collections and, and singles and whatever it was just I love that that comic strip, and it was it was perfect to me. The per- perfect literature, <laughs> it was excellent. So your books, or at least the two that we've read, the the Who to F Are You and Who to F Cares, focus on being a Muslim American woman and how that impacts you, but also the ways in which you're perceived by others who aren't familiar with Muslim families and culture. So I'm wondering, who would you say is your target audience? And if it is both Muslims and non-Muslims, is it a challenge to write for these two audiences at the same time? So my first audience is for for Muslims. It it started that way. I really wanted to to share that story that I know that other Muslims, and specifically women who wore hijab, because my initial comic was called Yes, I'm Hot in This. And it was like, (laughs) I very much thought that it was only going to connect with other hijabi women because we didn't get a lot like of stuff that was made just for us and so i thought okay this will be just for us and if other people think it's funny great and if they don't then that's okay it's not for them and that's how it kind of evolved and it became um, and some comics were educational some comics were just again very niche very specific to uh, muslims you know and and it was wonderful to see that so many demographics connected with it because it was Uh, this universal topic of just feeling like misunderstood, misrepresented, like you don't fit in, Um, you know, the the idea that you have a name that's really hard to pronounce, or people are, you know, it feels like they're purposely trying to say it wrong, having the the kind of mother who comes in after you've just cleaned your house and and opens the microwave and sees that it's dirty and looks at you and like, "Hmm." (laughs) this is how I raised you. And so it's like very (laughs) universal themes that I thought at the beginning were very specific and and really only um, related to my experience and that people who shared that would, would get. And so now when I write, these are young adult reads. And when I write from the perspective of a Muslim teenage girl who wears hijab and has this different sounding name, and I try to be as authentic as possible because in one, it's the only way I can write. And, and two, I know now that the more 
authentic it is and the more unique the story is, funny enough, the more relatable it is. The more that I find that people who who are not Muslims actually relate to these experiences. And it is so amazing to, to know that. It's that. I've been doing this now since 2016. And so it's after, what, seven years, it's hearing the, all the feedback from Muslims and non-Muslims alike that, that enjoy the stories, that relate to the stories, has been so motivational for me to continue writing as authentically as possible. And so that's kind of how I, uh, I uh, what I continue to strive to do. It seems when you said that, the, the first thing that popped in my head is that it's almost like a paradox, like that writing as authentically as you can about your experience actually makes these connections with people who are very different from you. Originally, when you mentioned about your parents making the doctor comment, the first thing I thought was, you know, I'm not Asian, but you've heard or read about like tiger moms, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and that expectation of parents for children. And you know, I had the the question in my head, oh, I wonder if that's like a cultural connection that if you're not in those cultures, you know, if you weren't brought up in those cultures, you wouldn't necessarily make that connection automatically. Yeah, I, I feel like there, there are so many people who understand the dynamic of parents who have these high expectations for their kids, especially parents who've struggled themselves to, to make it and to want success for their children. And so they put these expectations on their kids. And again, thinking that it was, oh, these are just my parents. And then finding out, well, it's a lot of parents, mm-hmm. regardless of you know the demographic. And it's so fun to, to be able to connect on that level. Well, and even you know this book, uh, Who to F Cares, it's about taking a family road trip. Uh, to Disney World. And I think most of us have had some sort of related experience to having sort of an an embarrassing or fraught family trip (laughs) when you're all riding in the car together. I mean, that's a pretty universal experience, I think. I agree. When the idea came about, like, I can't be the only one to have (laughs) had a road trip that was both fun and like traumatic at the same time. So your books have focused on moving to Dearborn, Michigan when you were young, traveling, as you mentioned, as a family to Disney World, and how you met and married your husband. So I'm wondering, are there other stories from your life that you're planning to mine for future books? Or do you think (laughs) that you'd ever sort of branch out beyond yourself into fictional stories? I've both actually. So I'm currently working on the next installment. It's called Who to F Wants to Know. And that is about, (laughs) (laughs) that one is about how Huda processes the divorce of her parents. And so this is, it's mentioned in in that can be arranged, which is, I call it my graphic memoir. And that one is actually based on on my life. And these are more loosely based. These are, you know, the the things didn't happen 100%. And then they were very much based little incidents that happened that I've taken and, you know, creative liberties with and and, and, created the story. And so my parents in real life divorced when I was in college, I was in my 20s. And who the wants to know her parents divorced while she's still in high school. Mm-hmm. And so experiencing it as a teenager is going to be different than experiencing it as uh, as an adult. So, you know, divorced as an adult. So it's, so it's a little bit of both. I'm, I am taking based on mining, as you said, I like that mining from my own life. At the same time, it's also fictionalized. So, you know, it's playing with these both, both of these worlds. And I have to be very careful because they are, you know, my, my family, people who in our community is very small in Michigan where I grew up. And so they know my family. And so mm-hmm. when they see it, they make that connection with my real family. Even if it's a fictionalized version of those characters, mm. they'll still make those connections. So I have to be really careful with how I present my family. Um, and I've taken permission and, and, and they're, they're okay with it, but I still you know, want to make sure that I'm not crossing any boundaries. There's that. I'm currently working on a completely fictional, not Hoda characters. I'm working on other stories that I'm looking forward to, to developing as well. So there's more yeah, in there. Are these graphic novels? Still mm-hmm. a graphic novel. Okay. I think I'm still scared to write. I'm not going to lie that the idea of my parents telling me you're not, you know, you got to be really good. It terrifies me to actually <laughs> write long form. And, uh, well, it seems like you have mastered this form. This book was nominated for a National Book Award in Young People's Literature, right? Tell us a little bit about that. How did you handle the news when it came? It uh, it was wild, surreal. Uh, I thought it was a prank. I was like, <laughs> "What a mean prank!" Um, who would do this to me? It was it was uh, unbelievable. 
it was a type of validation that I had just told myself, I'd just come to terms with the idea that I don't need to be on these lists and I don't need to have awards and I'm okay just writing my stories and, and I know who my audience is and I, I know who my readers are and I know that they love my work and they enjoy my work and that's who I'm writing for. And so I had just come to terms with this. Like every year these lists come out and I hope one day that I'll see my book on it. And, you know, you know, it means something. Of course, it means so much. But then, if, you know, I tr- I'm trying to like talk to myself into thinking it's okay. It's not like a reflection on my, the value of my work. Mm-hmm. So when I got this call, I, I, I was like, oh, that's cool. this wave of validation that i thought i was okay not ever having and it felt so good because here's this like to me i thought it was just a silly story about a muslim girl who's bonding with her being forced upon with her sisters and struggling with praying in public and again thinking it was such a you know specific story and to have it honored in that way amongst such amazing titles i was blown away so it seems like that should be a book at some point, like <laughs> Huda having issues about doing whatever she's doing. And then she gets this, you know, nominated for an award. That seems like it would be a perfect thing <laughs> because I think, I mean, it's a very universal feeling, like no matter yeah. what you're doing, you would like somebody to notice, you know, yeah. bes- besides yourself, you know, you would yeah. like validation that what you're doing means something so if you just want to pocket that for you know down the road (laughs) after you finish some of your other works you can always pull it back out got it (laughs) so what did what did your parents say did you go back and say look i did it (laughs) (laughs) they are so incredibly proud you know once i hit 30 they were like all right i guess we'll give up on the It's probably not going to happen. And so they've, they've really always been proud of, of what I've done. And, and now I'm looking at my medal. I have it like propped up and it's just, I, it, I'm so grateful to them because I truly like my stories are based a lot on the lessons that my parents taught me to be strong and to be proud of who I am and to be confident. And, and I really, it is a reflection of these stories and this success is a reflection of, of their parenting and their support. So I'm truly grateful. So let's talk just a little bit about your process and creating your books. Do you write the story first or do you draw first or how does that work for you? I always write my stories first. And I, I've done enough panels with other graphic novels and um, illustrators and authors, and a lot of them illustrate first and they, they draw first. They're drawing as they're writing, or sometimes they'll draw, it'll come to them and then they'll write. And I, I find that fascinating because I think it goes back to, it doesn't come naturally. It is something I have to, every time I sit down to sketch a, a panel, it is something that I have to work at. And so I know that, okay, that writing Again, major in English, learn, you know, taught English, writing comes easy to me. That's very easy to me. Telling the story is very easy to me. So I will always write it out first. It'll look kind of like a, a script, like a TV script or something. And then and then that'll get sent to to edits. And once they come back with their notes, I'll start to parcel it out and to try to imagine like, what is this going to look like um, drawn out? And so I'll do it usually 10 pages at a time. And I'll figure out like okay when I say 10 pages I mean 10 graphic novel pages mm. like an entire manuscript is maybe 30 pages long for me so far on average about 30 pages long so that'll translate to maybe like right now I'm going off of what I'm working on right now it'll translate to about 200 pages of a graphic novel so mm. yeah so I'll take like uh, you know one of those pages and I'll try to figure out okay how many panels can I break this down to and I'll start drawing hmm. so if- Okay, I, I'm I might get into the weeds here, yeah. Just because I'm 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 trying to imagine this. So when I think about somebody writing a novel, right? Like you know they they have their chapter, but it seems like writing a graphic novel or a graphic memoir would be almost like not writing a picture book, but in some ways it seems like it would be more like that because you can't have as many words. So have you just gotten used to the way you need to write it? Or like when you did your first one, was it more like all the, I guess, more wordy, and then you really had to parse it down to make it work for a graphic novel format? 
they don't give me a word limit. Even for pages, they'll even ask me like, how many pages do you think this book will be? And so I don't even really have a limit so far. I know I had a friend of mine, uh, Pedro Martin, who wrote uh, Mexican, and he, I think he had written like 600 pages of like graphic novel. Like his book is, I think, 300. They were like, yeah, you need to (laughs) to get this down. I think like that's like a huge amount, which I would have loved to read because that's such a great story. But so my books haven't ever reached the level where they're like, oh, break it down a little bit. So I'll just, in terms of like a, like a picture book, I I, I can tell you this, that that every graphic novel author such illustrator um, has their own unique method Mm -hmm. to to writing and creating their graphic novels. So it's like, as I'm, as I'm writing, the images will come to me. So I'll kind of already know how I want it to look. Mm-hmm. And then when I actually start to draw and I'll go back to the words, I'll remember those images again. Sometimes I'll have notes in the margin where I'll be like, this is what I want it to look like. Or I'll mm-hmm. think this is going to be a whole page. As I'm writing out the manuscript, I'll be like, this is this is just going to be no words. This is just an image. And this is what the image is going to be. Yeah, That's very cool. Just to imagine the process and how you work and how it all comes to look the way it does. And I think I hope that it motivates people who are interested in getting into graphic novels to know that there's no right or wrong way to really mm-hmm. do this. And um, it makes it to me, at least it feels very like an accessible thing to, to start. But yeah, you're in control of the panels, you're in control of pages. And it's, it's a lot of fun. Because you have this childhood love of, of comics, and, and you create graphic novels slash graphic memoirs do you have any favorite graphic novel writers you mentioned one of them pedro martin yes he wrote mexi kid and there's jean luen yang who wrote oh, american yeah. Born chinese and so many others amazing he's amazing and there's of course reina telgemeier mm-hmm. who was the first the og who made um <laughs> graphic novel you know memoirs a thing and and really paved the way for us to to be able to, to, to show that this is a medium that is successful and, and people want to read this type of um, story. There's uh, Svetlana Chemakova. She, she has, she's got so many. And uh, one of my favorites that she's written is Brave. And that one has like a Muslim girl who wears hijab on the cover. And that was one of the first times I've seen that in a comic book. And there was more than one that, you know, hijabi character. And it, she, she just kind of like existed. She was part of the story. She moved the story along. She was like one of the three main characters. And it was so special and so wonderful to see. And, and I'll always love that that story. I have so many. I don't know if we, if we have time for me to list others. <laughs> one of my friends, her name is Malika Gharib. G-H-A-R-I-B is how you spell it. Gharib. And uh, her recent one was, uh, It Won't Always Be Like This. And that one I connected with because it was from the point of view of an Egyptian-American girl. And I'm Egyptian as well. And so she goes to Egypt and it's fun to see because I, I felt like I had the same experiences as her. So like she went overseas and she's trying to be Egyptian and American, but she doesn't feel like she fits in either. It was, it was a lot of fun. It's such a great book. Well, let's talk a little bit about Muslim writers because you said also that you know you wanted to sort of promote other Muslim writers. So who are some go-to reads that you would suggest to those who want to diversify their reading and include more m- Muslim writers? Oh my God. So uh, SK Ali, if she comes out with a book, I will be the first one in line to get it. She's amazing. SK Ali, she wrote uh, Love from A to Z and oh, all of Love from Mecca to Medina. Yes. 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 Uh-huh. And then there's Saba Tahir, who wrote like All My Rage. And the sky beyond the storm and ember in the ashes. Then there's Hafsa Faisal, who's uh, a close friend of mine and her books. I'm recently, I'm currently reading fans reader copy of A Tempest of Tea, which is Peaky Blinders meets Vampires. Ooh, uh, oh. And it's, it's so good. I'm obsessed with this story. And I'm what's it called again? The Tempest? It's called A Tempest of Tea. A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal. And that's not a that's not a Muslim story. It's just she's Muslim and she just wrote it. And it's I love that. Oh, she's amazing. So she's also written like We Hunt the Flame, We Free the Stars. That was her first, that was her duology that she wrote. And then finally, um, Zolfa Katu, who wrote As Long as the Lemon Trees Grow. Though, again, oh, she's coming yeah. out with more stuff. Oh, that book. I could talk about that book forever. So good. But yeah, Zolfa Katu. So I, amazing. I feel like in the last 10 years, we've seen this growth of Muslim authors who write in so many diverse genres. And, and I love seeing that because it's just hopeful. It just makes me so, so hopeful. 
Okay, so this is our last question, and it's sort of a silly one. But how do you feel about 500-plus page books? Do you love them, or do you hate them? I've definitely read my fair share of 500-plus books. It's never been a turnoff. I guess. Okay. It's never been a turnoff. It's not like I'll look at the book and it's too long. I won't read it. So if the story is compelling enough, yeah, I'll read. I want it. I want definitely. But I'm thinking, you know, graphic novels, you can get through them pretty quickly. Like if you're yes. dedicated, you can get through them quickly. <laughs> and yet like a 500 page book will, for the average person, yes. take a very long time. Uh, it's so funny because so far I'm in, I'm in year two now of this next book. <laughs> I'm spending so much time and then people will be like an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the next one. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about like every dinner I ever cook. It's like I fix it. I spend all this time shopping for it, thinking about it, fixing the meal and my kids eat it in like 10 seconds flat. Scarf it down. Exactly how I feel. <laughs> but it's, it's okay. I, I, I'm happy. That they they enjoy your meal so much. <laughs> no, not really. No, we never never compare your books to my cooking because <laughs> mine are never going to win a national award for good eats or be or be a finalist. It's never going to happen. <laughs> but it has to be a good feeling, though. I mean, to to see people like clamoring, like, "Where's another one? Yes, give us another one." Yes. It is the best feeling. And it's, again, motivational. It's like, I, at this point, I'm so sick of these characters, which is unfortunate because uh, she's based off of me. And so, <laughs> so annoyed with my character right now. And I don't want to look at her. And so I I enjoy hearing back from people who are like, oh, when, when's the next one coming out? Are you working on another one? And so I'm like, oh, right. I guess got to get back to it. And, and it feels good. It feels really good. So does your older sister want to be able to keep the metal like part time like, <laughs> in her house? <laughs> My mom's asking for royalties. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. And she's like, uh, do I get any of this money? <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, don't talk to a lawyer. You might be right. <laughs> <laughs> Huda, it has been a blast chatting with you and learning all about your process and your experience as an author illustrator. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to chat about what we're reading. We're back with Huda Fami, who is the author of Huda F. Are You and Huda F. Cares. It was nominated for a National Book Award for Young People's Literature. But now we're going to talk about what we are reading. So, Carrie, we're back from the break. What are you going to talk about today? So I mentioned this book at the very end of last season because we were talking about awards. And uh, I think the Booker Prize had come out and I mentioned a book. I said I wasn't going to talk about it uh, then, but I'm going to talk about it now. So the book that I listened to, I picked the audiobook because Lin-Manuel Miranda narrated it. I love him. So that sold it for me. The book is called The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. This is a fast-paced book. At the very beginning, you get a lot of background on the Dominican Republic. For somebody who knew nothing about the Dominican Republic, it was like a lot of information coming at me really fast. I feel like there were a lot of things I missed, but I think that's okay because you get the gist of it, right? Which was the, the gist is that they were for many, many years under a dictatorship. And so this novel tells the story of a family who, at the beginning, the author talks about fuku, which is like a curse on the family. And so you meet this family and you kind of see how the different generations may or may not have had a curse on them. I think the biggest thing is that they lived under a dictatorship for so many years and that really impacted how they were able to live their lives. So the book follows Oscar, who is a, a boy. His, his mother was born in the Dominican Republic. He grows up in New York and he's overweight and he's a complete nerd. And all he wants is 
to find somebody to love. So you get his story. You also get the story of his sister, Lola. You get the story of his mother and and how and why she left the DR to come to the United States. You get the story of his grandparents and what their life situation is. So not only at the beginning do you get like lots of information about the history of the Dominican Republic, the book is filled with lots of cultural references, which were really kind of cool. Like you'll get these references to music or to things from Tolkien novels. And so if you kind of like books that have a lot of cultural references, you'll enjoy this. Now, again, I didn't get all of them. I, I felt like, you know, I could probably read this again and pick up things that I didn't get the first time around. So I found it really fascinating. And the thing that I kept thinking about as I was reading was you know, we think about how we get information and we think about getting information from nonfiction books, but fictional books can be so valuable in terms of our learning about real topics. So because I knew that I wasn't getting all of the information that I felt was coming at me about the DR I then Googled things to learn more about El Jefe and how long he was in power and different things about being one of the greater Antilles islands. You know, I I just felt like if you read a book like this, you can pick up a lot of fact while you're getting this very compelling story about a family. So I recommend it. This was a perfect way to blend of an interest in geography with a, a fictional story. And this one won. It won a big award, but it I don't remember. Did when it won the Pulitzer. Okay. It won the Pulitzer. Yes, it did. It was called The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. So Huda, what have you been reading? Uh, so most recently, I have started reading one of the other nominees from the long list for the National Book Awards. His, uh, it's called Hidden Systems. It's another graphic novel, and it was written by Dan Knotts. And this graphic novel is, first of all, incredibly detailed, so beautiful, but he sticks with a very monochromatic palette for his drawings, but still so incredibly detailed. And it talks about these hidden infrastructure systems. So like internet and um, waste management, water, electricity, like things that we don't think about until they all of a sudden just stop working and what happens to them. And so it's this, again, kind of like really informative book topic and a way that's really accessible and very easy to read. And it's uh, definitely like deserved to be on the list of the National Awards. I've just recently started. It's very hard to get into reading right now while I've got two kids and, and trying to finish up my own book. Yeah. And so it, it was something that immediately caught my attention because we don't really think about maybe it could be just like while we're in bed scrolling on our phones and then the power just goes out and you suddenly think about how much we rely on electricity and and kind of where does it come from? And then the first chapter of the book is about the internet and like what is that we talk about the internet and with so many different metaphors and analogies and but what is it actually and and learning that it we tapped into the old like Morse code system from back in like World War I can't remember which and and you know that's how we've run our internet wires under the ocean floors and this is just stuff that I didn't even consider or think about it. So I, was, I love reading about it in the way that he's written about it in this graphic novel form. And um, and so it's just been a fascinating, fascinating read. It's called Hidden Systems by Dan Knotts. That sounds up your alley, Carrie. <laughs> it does. Well, that's one of the best things I think about graphic books. If that was just a nonfiction book, right. I would never yep. pick something like that up because I would be like, this is going to be mm-hmm. so boring. <laughs> But if it has pictures, it's like you can get something from the words, but you could also get it from the pictures. And I feel like I'd be better able to remember it because it has the visual element to it. So I I think especially a lot of those nonfiction topics are perfect for graphic stories because of their complexity, which unless you're a wonk, you know, you might be like snooze fest. I'm not reading that. It's definitely something that I'm interested in because it's something that I know my son is interested in. He's seven years old. And and so I was looking Mm. at it from like, oh, let me, this will be something we could read together. And then I just kind of took it and (laughs) just, just (laughs) 
read it on point. That's the sign of a good book when you're like, okay, nope, mama's going to read this. I'm actually in the middle of four different books and I'm frustrated with myself because I'm trying to get through each one, but I always start another one. And like, I'm, I'm reading The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. If you no. like Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray. This is a Groundhog's Day type, uh, and it's like a murder mystery slash Groundhog's Day all in one. So the character wakes up every day experiencing the same day, but he wakes up in a different body every day trying to solve this murder of Evelyn. So every day he's waking up in a different body trying to figure out more clues and trying to solve this mystery. So I was like, oh, I'm hooked immediately. I love Groundhog's Day and I love this idea of waking up in a different person. I love murder mysteries and stuff like that. So so it sounded, so I'm trying to get through that one as well. That one's fun. And then I'm currently listening to the audiobook of Checkmate by Allie Hazelwood. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? I know before Christmas, you were <clears throat> reading all sorts of wintry reads. Are you still doing wintry reads? Not today am I reading a wintry read. I'm going to talk about a murder mystery. I read my very first Laura Lippman book, and she is an author of mysteries and crime fiction. And this is a book that our favorite bookseller, Sam Miller, recommended several years ago. And she says that Lippman is a go-to author for her. So the book that I read was Lady in the Lake by Laura Lippman. And so here's the setup. It's 1960s Baltimore, and you have this middle-aged housewife who decides when her only child is in high school, that she doesn't want to be married anymore. She wants a career and she wants to live on her own, which is kind of not done in in the society that she is in in Baltimore. So she gets her own place and she sort of talks her way onto the newspaper staff at a Baltimore newspaper. You know, she starts out, she's working in the social pages, but she's an aspiring crime reporter, which, you know, women weren't really crime reporters at that time either. But she's trying to find stories to report on to prove herself. And so there are a couple of murders that have happened in Baltimore in the last like six months or so that have gone unsolved. And so she decides to try to solve the murder of a forgotten young woman whose body has been found in the fountain of a city park. So this book is written from several point of view, from many characters, but the most prominent being the wannabe reporter, whose name is Maddie Schwartz, and a young black woman who disappears uh, named Leo. But we also get people who come in contact with both of these women. So if multiple point of views bother you, this book is probably not going to work for you. But that didn't bother me. I liked how each point of view added another piece of the puzzle to solving the mystery. And I did not see the end coming. I definitely did not figure this one out before the end. Uh, So the story of the murder itself is actually based on a true event. uh, But this novel explores racial divides gender inequality and the city of Baltimore itself serves as a character. I listened to this one on audio and I found it to be a compelling audiobook and you know I am picky about audiobooks. You are. But, but I really enjoyed my first Laura Lippman book and I look forward to reading more from her. She has one out this year called Prom Mom. That's her most recent. This one is from a couple years. This from a couple years ago, yeah. Yeah. Again, the name of the book is Lady in the Lake by Laura Lipman. Sounds good. Very good. All right. Well, we are going to take another break. We're going to hear from another book lover, their five-star read. But before we do, we want to say again, thanks to our guest, Huda Fami, author of Who to F Cares, Who to F Are You? That can be arranged. And yes, I'm hot in this. Huda, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. My name is Michelle Tupper Butler. I am in Louisville, Kentucky. And my five-star read goes to The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell by Robert Dugoni. This book absolutely took me by surprise from the moment that I started reading. I adored the main character. I wanted to scoop him up into a hug more than once. And he made me laugh constantly. Wit of the main character and his self-assurance through a very unusual ailment just brings a great deal of resilience to the entire story. I also appreciate the way the religious aspects and his grappling with theology in 
as he grows up with different people behaving in different levels of kindness towards him. As the daughter of a theologian myself, these kinds of questions came up often throughout my life. But the main thing about the story that resonates is just how resilient human beings can be in the face of just absolute tragedy. And to be able to have a sense of humor, the author just made me laugh constantly. It's told in the first person. I've done both the reading of it and the audible audiobook version, and both just complemented each other very well. It was a book I didn't want to end. It's just one of those very, very good stories that uh, have you cheering for the characters. I cared about the characters. And I wish that there were more books like this in this day and age. We're doing a, a new little segment where we're pulling in some guests. And I've got a guest that I live with. <laughs> It's my daughter, Nora, who is a big fantasy and kind of romancy reader. I read other genres too, but my favorites are mainly stuff that I can escape into, like for it to have romance a lot of the time. So I'd say you're correct. Tell me a, a book that you want to share with our listeners. So it was really hard to pick, but I chose to talk about a book called The Falconer by Elizabeth May. It was actually published in, I think, 2013. Yeah, 2013 it was published, so about 10 years ago. But I read it on our way back from our trip to Scotland this summer, and it was perfect because it takes place in Scotland. And that was kind of my point. I was trying to find books that took place in Scotland. Like, So I found this one. I was kind of just looking on the Livy app <laughs> And I think I looked up fantasy books that are set in Scotland, and this came up, and I had heard about it, but not much. And then I searched for it on Libby, and there it was. And I just downloaded it, and I read it. And I, like, read it so fast, too. Like, I sped through it. But then I went to Half Price Books one day, and I found this really nice hardcover. And I was like, hey. The main story is it takes place in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1844. This daughter of the Marquess of Douglas, they live in the Edinburgh castle in the story, but her name is Lady Aliana Cameron. And she's expected to be a lady, a proper lady, and prim and proper and not doing anything dangerous and reckless. But she can sense the fairy race, like the fae, that live kind of in not another dimension, but like in their world, but only certain people with that gift can sense them. So they're among the humans, but not entirely visible. But it's interesting because the author uses Gallic terms, like original, like, Scottish Gaelic terms to refer to the Fae. So I will not pronounce those because I cannot, but she can sense those Fae. And she made allies with one of them, and they basically just go out and kill the evil Fae who are trying to kill the humans and take over the humans. And something happened. I think it's a spoiler, so I won't say it. It happens early on, you know about it, but I won't say it. Something happens to her when she was younger, and it kind of gives her a vendetta against the Fae. So she really has a motive for killing them and for doing what she does. The the, the bad Fae. The bad Fae, okay. yes. Not her friends, but okay. the bad Fae. Okay. I got kind of steampunk vibes from it because she's very like crafty, and she has a lot of tools and like unique weapons that she uses. And it's really, it was really interesting to read about, but says in the blurb, so this isn't a spoiler, it says she's the last in line of female warriors born with a gift for hunting and killing the fae. She's the sole hope of preventing a powerful fairy population from massacring all of humanity. And so she's basically trying to save the world. And there's some like romance, obviously, one with the ally fae she's with, and then also with her best friend's brother, I think it is. And he's like an important guy in Scottish aristocracy. So she's having to deal like with her double life. Cool. Yeah. All right. And it doesn't look like it's too thick of a book. How many pages um, is that? I think it's a 400. Oh, wow. It doesn't look nearly no, that thick. Uh, the back kind of has some like uh, an index <laughs> of like the different kinds of fae, which I wish I would have known about when I was reading it. But I guess it's only in the physical copy. It wasn't in my ebook. So it's about 373 pages. Oh, okay. So pretty short, and I read it really fast, and it's just a lot of fun. The title is The Falconer by Elizabeth May, and it's a trilogy. There's three books. But you've only read the first one. But I've one. only read the first one. All right. I, yeah. 
All right. Well, good. Well, thanks. You're welcome. You can find Huda at her website, hudafami.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. If you enjoy listening to us each week, tell a friend or write us a review on your favorite podcast platform to help other book lovers find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.